you have your Bibles and would like to join me, I would encourage you to do so from the 18th chapter of Matthew as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew and into this chapter which Jesus was answering a question of the disciples which began in verse 1. And as they were asking the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? He first of all tells them how to enter the kingdom of God as a little child. And we come to a place now in the scripture that is important to maintain that same humility, but then to direct uh, this love of God toward us and toward one another as we live faithfully in this passage. Now this is probably the most uh, well-known passage in Matthew 18, but it certainly has its context that must be maintained. I'll begin reading in verse 15, and we'll finish up at verse 20 for this morning. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, that if two or three, or if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Our gracious Father, we ask that you would attend the preaching of your word with your spirit, that the very words that he breathed into Matthew so many years ago, which is the living word of God, inerrant inspired, given by God to us, we pray that we would now receive it as your word to us this day. Open up our minds with the correct understanding and the discernment of the Spirit by which we will hear with our hearts, comprehend with our minds, and go and be doers of the word. So energize us, we pray, to be about the things you've given us to do as disciples of Christ. May we go and obey all of the things that he has taught us. And so may we be faithful. Lord, it is very unpleasant when we have to go and confront a brother. And we do not long for this. But yet to be faithful to your word to do what is pleasing in your sight, there are occasions when we must. So give us the grace to be faithful, not to shirk our covenant responsibilities, but also to love the right things, and not so much ourself as much as our Lord God in heaven. So may we deny ourselves and pick up our cross this day and follow you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When we live this close to each other in community, biblical conflict resolution is an essential quality in the community for its long-term growth and for the testimony of Christ 
and for the health of the church. And yet, for all of those things are really secondary in terms of the benefit for the biblical reason, the primary reason for conflict resolution is to glorify God. To be a good Christian, which is what Jesus was answering in this expedition, exposition through Matthew 18, he's answering the question that began in verse 1. Lord, who is the greatest in your kingdom? Well, I'm going to show you what it means to be good. In verses 1 through 14, he begins to teach them about a child. And he says to even get into the kingdom, you're going to have to have the humility as one of these little ones and maintain that humility throughout your Christian walk. The second portion, which is the portion we're in now and spending some weeks in verses 15 through 20, with that same childlike humility now that you're maintaining, there's going to be some unpleasant times where you're going to have to confront your brother in order to be faithful. To be a good Christian, you're going to have to do this. And then third, which we haven't gotten to yet, which begins at the end of this passage to the remainder of the passage, is you're going to have to be deeply, deeply forgiving. And the wells from which you will draw from to be forgiving of your brother of any sin and trespass he is uh, trespass against you will be drawn from wells infinitely so from Christ's forgiveness for you. Now that's what it means to be a good Christian. That's what it means to be a healthy church. And so when we come to this section of Matthew 18 about lovingly confront a brother, it is something that is unpleasant. In fact, if it is pleasant for you to do this, then something is wrong with your character. We call that a contentious spirit. It's not pleasant, but we have to do this. We have to go about it, and the way we go about it is critically, critically important. And that's why we're going to spend some time in this section. A bit of a review, because we are moving past the private confrontation but as we think about when an offense has been made against you, and you cannot let it go, and it begins to affect your relationship with your brother, you are to go to your brother. You are to go to your brother alone. You don't involve others at this point. You don't go and complain to others about what your brother has done. If you have the energy to speak to someone else about the problem, then you have the command to go to the brother himself and to address him with the matter. But when you go to the brother, go in a spirit of meekness, lest you also be tempted. Go with the possibility that when you confront him, there was a miscommunication or a misinterpretation of the situation. And so you're going to go with that in mind. No matter how clear and how much you know and how much you think you know, you're going to go giving some benefit of the doubt. Do I really understand this? 
You're going to have to watch your spirit because oftentimes we hinder the communications and the understanding with a spirit that is not teachable or we go with an angry spirit. We go emotionally charged and remember that a soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words will stir up the spirit. You have to remember the reasons why you're going to the brother. It's not to protect or defend your ego. It's for the sake of the relationship, for love's sake. That's one reason you go. A second reason you go is for the sake of your brother, to win your brother who has fallen into sin. A third reason you go is for the sake of the body of Christ, for the sake of His church and the health and the unity of the church. And a fourth reason you go to your brother is for the sake of Christ. The glory of God. And that is the chief reason that you're going. Now we need to get to, to a place as a church. I'm speaking to heritage here. Here's just a, some application before I'm even getting into the, the meat of the message this morning. But we need to get into a place as a church where we are habitually practicing this. Habitually practicing this such that you are not first and foremost calling the pastor or writing the pastor about a problem you have with a brother. But if a brother has offended you, go and speak to the brother. Have a hearing with the brother or the sister. I want to give some counsel to those who become offended. Or those who will witness an offense. I want to give you some counsel. Because rest assuredly, there's everyone here that's going to need this counsel. Because every one of us will be offended in our lifetime. Multiple times. And many of you before the end of this day. All right? Let me give you some counsel. Love your brother so much that you can overlook most of his sins and transgressions against you. Do not take an accounting sheet and start listing all of these problems and nuances from the way he spoke to you, the tone of voice, or how he conducted himself, or the way he combs his hair, which is not really an offense against you, but sometimes we take those things that way. But when he actually does sin against you, Love Him so much that you can cover that multitude of transgression. When He offends you, love Him. And overlook the offense. And understand He is someone that God has forgiven. And that He is growing in grace. As we all are. Now this is a corollary, and it's not on my notes, but let me just bring it up as I mention that. When your pastor sins against you, love him. <laughs> and overlook a multitude of transgressions. Because I'm a sheep before I'm a shepherd. And I'm a sinner before I have been a saint. 
And I have not reached glory yet, and neither is Keith, and neither are your deacons, and neither has your husband, and neither of any of us. Okay, If we can live in the context of the gospel, we must acknowledge, first of all, that we're sinners, we're going to sin, we're going to transgress against one another and against God, and so therefore we have something that we say every single Lord's Day, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And it's one of the most tremendous things. Uh, okay, <clears throat> another thing that's not on my notes here. but uh, In early days of Martin Luther's conversion, there he was after making this rash vow, and he was in the monastery in his little cubicle, and he was lay, laid prostrate on the floor, completely unresponsive. overcome with sin and the, the, the sense of his depravity and his unworthiness before God. He became such uh, so laden with guilt and heaviness that he just lay there unresponsive, would not respond to any of his brother monks. He would not respond to anything. And, and one of the, I don't know what you'd call him, a friar, a baker, I don't know what it is. but you, One of the, the guys, I think the head of the monastery, he he goes and he just stands at the door and all he can do, all he knows to do is to quote the Apostles' Creed. And when he comes to the one phrase, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Luther said it sparked uh, uh, in his heart, came to his spirit, and he said, that is what I needed. I needed to know that my sins are forgiven. It is the release in the gospel and the grace of God, not something that we merited, but the free grace of forgiveness. And we need to be gospel people, forgiving people, and we need to be loving people because God has so loved you. Now let me say this. Uh, as a second point of encouragement. If your brother sins in such a way that that sin is characteristic of his life, you must go to your brother for the Lord's sake. You do not want that sin to continue in his state of being that is not going checked or noticed. It could be a blind spot. And he needs you to speak into his life. And that is why we need the community of saints. Someone living in isolation will not grow in grace. And one of the greatest needs of our sanctification is have other people speak to our blind spots. And we understand now, sometimes for the first time, oh, I was doing that. Oh, you mean that's wrong? Oh, it's kind of those moments. And if it is a characteristic sin in someone's life, he's not likely to just wake up and be done with it when you bring it to his attention. That's why accountability comes into play. That's why we do not forsake ourselves together as is the manner of some, but we assemble ourselves to provoke each other to love and good deeds. We speak into each other's life. We hold each other accountable. That's what... We are doing here this day for the glory of God. 
So you've got to come to a place where we recognize that this is a part of our Christian experience. This is a part of what it means to live in covenant community, the church. So you have to go to your brother in some situations. You have to go to your brother and point out blind spots when it's a characteristic issue and it's before God and he is just continuing to sin. You have to go to your brother if he is culpable of crimes that you are aware of. Or if he sins against you to the extent that your relationship is broken and begins to be estranged and things fest, you have to go to your brother. Things will only get worse. Okay? Now let me give you some counsel to those of you who may offend somebody else with your sins. Okay, I'm, I'm giving all of you counsel today. Because you will sin, you will sin against somebody else today, and somebody else is going to love you today to the point where you didn't even know it. Isn't that a beautiful thing? But when, when you're the offender, always be open and non-defensive about another person coming and confronting you. Let me say that one more time. Always be open and non-defensive about another person coming and confronting you. You're going to sin. That's a given. So don't be surprised or defensive when another one comes to point it out. There's a way to deal with it, and it can be quick, and it can be fairly easy. I'm not saying it's... it's let, let me say it's simple. Let me not say easy. It's never easy to deal with sin. But it can be simple because the gospel is right there. But the more resistant you are, the more difficult it becomes and the more escalated it may come, become. So there's so much ground that can be covered in sanctification if both parties are committed to this first step. And this first step is not church discipline, by the way. This first step is reconciliatory. It is pursuing peace with all people. It is giving the benefit of the doubt. It is trying to make sure that you are right with your brother because if you do not love your brother even in this way, you do not love God who you have never seen. And so part of this is loving your brother. You love him so much that you rejoice in the truth of his life. You love him so much that you don't want him to continue in error. You love Him so much that you don't want Him to be arrested. You love Him so much that you don't want Him to destroy His life or the church. You love Him so much that you want His relationship to be joyful with God. See, that, it's all about those things. It's not about your ego. It's not about my ego. That's what meaning die to yourself means. You are to deny your ego. You are to deny the flesh. You are to die to that old self, the flesh, and pick up your cross and follow Jesus. I have to stress, if you go to your brother, love is the thing that you have to be going with in the utmost humility, which is the preceding context. You do not want to become the community police. 
but love. Now, when we come to this next step of the process, we will come to this next step of the process only if you are unsuccessful in that first step. And let me say to this, it may take several attempts on that first step before you even think about bringing two or three others. And in fact, let me say this, as long as you are moving with progress, you never have to involve two or three others. It may be going slower than you wish, but if it is progressive, then you can just continue to work in that relationship. If you don't get anywhere, that's when you take one or two others with you. And there will be occasions where you will never have to take one or two others with you. You will never have a clean closure on your situation And you might still never take that to the next step. That can be uncomfortable, but that's sometimes when you're going to have to simply leave that in the matter with God and forgive your brother in your heart and really lean into that relationship so that it can foster once again. But sometimes you're not ever going to go beyond that. This morning I want to speak to you about lovingly confronting a brother with others. There are some things we need to consider as we do consider this passage and we exhort us to live in this way that we do lovingly confront others, but now we're going to bring others into the picture. Let me go back to an illustration I think I used a couple of weeks ago. You're in the department store and you see someone there that's in your church. He does not see you. And he's over at the jewelry counter and you see him putting on a watch. And then you see him take the watch and put it in his pocket. And he begins heading toward the exit and you come around the corner and and there he sees you and, and you say, oh, hello, John. And he looks a little upset, a little nervous and and he quickly exchanges pleasantries and, and then he, he, he leaves and he leaves the store. And what you have witnessed according to your uh, perspective and your interpretation is that he clearly stole a watch from that store. And you have an obligation now to go to your brother and confront him about that. But before you do, you have to consider a few things. Is what you accuse your brother or what you're going to accuse your brother verifiable? Can you prove what you accuse? And then as you go to your brother, you need to be open to possibilities. What you saw was clear. It was unquestionable from your perspective, but you need to be open to some possibilities. And you're going to have to soften your perspective to get some benefit of the doubt. He could outright be lying about it. He could have stolen it and be outright lying about it and be guilty. And that's going to be what maybe seems the most obvious to you, to the place where you cannot think of anything else 
and you've got that fixation there. But there may be, and I think you need to always open yourself up for this, another way to interpret that situation differently. And you need to go listening, and you need to go to try to understand. Could be a mistaken impression of the same event. It could be that you began to see him right in the watch aisle. And he had already tried on all the watches. And now all of a sudden, you see him putting on his own watch, but you're thinking it's the store watch. And then he takes it, and because of the problem why he is considering a new watch, because this watch band keeps pinching his skin, and he doesn't want to fool with it anymore, he takes it and puts it in his pocket, and he heads toward the door. When you came onto the scene, you're looking at him trying on a watch, looking around, taking that watch, putting it in his pocket, and walking out of the store. There are possibilities for something else other than what you absolutely are certain that you saw. And you have to be open that you could be mistaken or have the wrong impression or the wrong interpretation. So you have to go meekly. I know of a real life situation of an illustration where a pastor had gotten a call to go to another church. And he was packing up his office and things in the building, his wife was there with him, and one of the ladies, perhaps it was the secretary or someone from the church, came by and was about to bid him farewell because he was leaving this church and going to that church, and the door was there, and she could see the pastor down the aisleway of the door, and this lady came and gives him a big hug, and they hug and embrace, and they're saying their goodbyes. The pastor's wife is off the scene back here, could not be seen, and all this woman saw was this pastor hugging this woman. And then all of a sudden, the rumor begins. And things blow up. And he explains. And he says, but my wife was right here the entire time and you didn't see that. By this time, the water has been under the bridge. He didn't, the call to the pastorate that he was going was canceled, and he lost his job at that church. All because of a misinterpretation of a particular situation without having all the facts and understanding. And I'm telling you, for church leaders, Satan loves to fan those flames. That is why you do not you never receive an accusation against an elder without two or three witnesses because Satan loves that territory. Satan will fodder your mind with things that are absolutely black and white clear and in your mind you're going to think there's no other way about it but you need to slow down and back up and just remember there could be other possibilities. Some situations are very difficult to ascertain. And we want everybody to have a fair treatment so that truth may abound. That's what we want from everybody. We want truth. 
The greatest joy that we have is that our children are walking in the truth. The greatest joy pastors have is that when the sheep are walking in the truth, when he's walking in the truth, we want truth. But some situations are very difficult, especially in this fallen world where we tend to distort things uh, ourselves, sometimes quite unwillingly. But the thing that you need to consider is can you prove the charge? You'll have to come to terms that in some cases you will never be settled. You will never have the evidence or the proof to be able to escalate this matter any further. And you're just going to have to settle this by going alone. And you may have to go to the brother and you confront the brother when you see what you thought you saw. But then there's no evidence or proof about this. You're going to have to leave it. And you're going to have to leave it with the Lord. And in your mind, you think it was black and white. But at the point where you're going to need to escalate it to the next step, where you then bring two, one or two others with you, you're going to have to be confident that you have a strong case that could be proven. And this is where a lot of missteps happen right here. People think they have a strong case when they don't have any case at all. It's filled with emotion. It's filled with subjective criteria. So it's important to note at this case that you're going to have to take one or two others and you're going to have to have a strong case. And you have to do this. Now this is important to note. What if you were one of the ones who are being asked to go with somebody? Or the ones that are going uh, as witnesses to the situation, they must be impartial. They cannot be biased. They can't do anything through partiality. Partiality means that you're going to be persuaded that somebody is guilty or persuaded in some way already about the situation before you actually hear the case. You cannot do that. You have to be absolutely objective the best you know how and remove yourself, literally distance your emotions from this situation that you can be as objective as you know how and come in it not holding to the one side that you have already heard, but really come in there objectively. You cannot take one person's word over the other person's word. The person that comes to you and says, hey brother, can you come with me? Today? You can't take his word over the person's word that you have not even heard yet. Are we, are we on the same page with that? This is not easy to do. But this is required of you. Now what if you're one or two witnesses, you're one or two people that come with you, and you're confronting now the offending brother, but then these one or two began to see the situation quite differently by, from the way that you saw the situation. The way you've been telling it is not how they're seeing it or hearing it. And they begin to see that the charges you're making against the offender are unsubstantiated and even perhaps bogus. And now the difficulty is that the other brother can charge you with hurting his good name. 
with maligning his character before the brethren, before any proof or substantial evidence was given to show that you have a strong case. And now the whole thing gets turned around and the person who is offended is actually the offender. Because you charged the offender without proof or evidence or any, and now you brought others into this situation. And now, if you don't have a strong case, you could be culpable for this whole thing. Does that make sense? Proverbs twenty-eight or twenty-five eight says. In fact, just to let this sink in a little bit, let's go there. Proverbs twenty-five eight. Proverbs 25.8 says, Do not go hastily to court, for what will you do in the end when your neighbor has put you to shame? Debate your case with your neighbor and do not disclose the secret to another, lest he who hears it expose your shame and your reputation is ruined. See, if you're one who's been offended and you've gone to your brother, you feel like you have to escalate this to the next level. You have to be fairly certain about your case. And there's such a fine line here to consider because we cannot fear the consequences and fear to do the right thing when you need to go to your brother. But on the other hand, you can't charge your brother on very slim evidence or on a personal hunch or on a subjective impression, or when you have actually contributed substantially to the problem, we can never charge a brother even with evil motives or some intent of the heart. You can't do that. And if you do, it could be turned back around on you because you have now slandered your brother in such a way that you can't substantiate. You might be found guilty. Now the passage that makes this clear is back in Deuteronomy 19 where we read uh, at just a few moments ago from our Old Testament Scriptures. And I'm going to reread that for us. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning the iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses the matter shall be established. And this is the quote that Matthew is quoting from, right from Matthew 19, and he's using this. When something goes public, it has to be in the mouth of two or three witnesses that is established. Verse 16, and if a false witness rises against a man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both the men of the controversy shall come and stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who serve in those days, and the judges shall make careful inquiry. And if indeed, if the witness is a false witness, a malicious witness, who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him what he thought would have been done to his brother, so you shall put the evil away from you. You may have witnessed misbehavior, and yet you're the only witness to it, and you have the responsibility to approach your brother. But in order for there to be any possibility for that to be taken up to the church 
which will be the next step, you're going to have to have some second confirmation. Or else it's just kind of your word against His word. Your word against her word. It takes two or three witnesses, something in additional to your single witness on that point. Now, by the way, a witness can be additional documentation. It doesn't have to be a person. It can be something that will substantiate with evidence a proof for the case that this did indeed happen. But if a false witness rises up in the midst of this situation, and the idea here of a false witness is malicious intent. And if that witness is found out that he is a malicious witness against the accused for something, then there are consequences that that malicious witness must pay. For instance... Let's say if a false witness rises up against a brother or against a person in a murder trial. And if the defendant is sentenced to the death penalty because of that false or malicious witness, but then later the appeals court goes and finds out that that was not true, then the person who was the malicious witness would be brought forth and sentenced to the death penalty for biblical justice to be executed. That's what that is talking about. If you are a partial witness, a biased witness in an ecclesiastical court where a church discipline case is going on, and you falsely testify against the accused because of your partiality... But when the case shows otherwise from what you have witnessed, you are culpable for the sins of which you then falsely accused. So we have to treat this very carefully. We have to be objective. We can't be quickly persuaded at first. We have to be the truth. So for any public action, there has to be two or three witnesses. But what if you are absolutely certain that your brother sinned? You're absolutely certain, and yet you have no confirmation about it. You can't show it. You, can't, you don't have the evidence. What are you to do? You're going to have to leave that one with the Lord. You're going to have to leave it with the Lord. I am very convinced, very convinced that my wife, on a number of occasions, thought that I have sinned against her, and I just feel completely blameless, and what can she do? She's going to have to leave it with the Lord, and the day of judgment will bring it to light. I'm sorry, well, forgive me for all those times that I don't even know about, yeah. Right? Some justice you're just going to have to leave with the Lord into the day of judgment. You cannot execute every single thing of justice. And you can't take something and escalate it if you have no evidence or proof. Although you might be certain that it's right, you cannot ex escalate it. You can confront the brother. You can share your concerns. You can say, I, I, I'm having a struggling time to know how you can be blameless in this. And, and his answer is not very convincing. But you can't prove it. You've got to leave it. 
you got to leave it. However, if the case is verifiable, and you feel like you've got a good case, and you feel like you've got some evidence that can support your case, then you should approach one or two other brothers or sisters, depending on the case, and those brothers or sisters should be members of your church. Now let's just say if there's a situation here, okay? When we get into cross-church kind of situations, that becomes a little different, but you, you need to, for the most part, in most cases, be getting people all of the same church. Why? Because there's a possibility for that third step. And they're going to have to verify this in ecclesiastical court when it gets there. We will discuss, and coming back to some of your question about uh, what happens when a sinner is over here, the offenders in this church, we're going to have to address some of those things in due course, and there's a place for that. But you always have to get, the, you want to try to get the testimony and the witnesses of people in the same court of which the offender is in, in case if this gets escalated in his church, that can be verified in his court. Now, at this point, you may want to employ a church officer, but it's not really always wise to do so because that person's going to be seen sometimes as, as now step three when it's not step three. In fact, if you take a church officer with you, it has to be very clear. He's not coming as a pastor. He's just coming as a faithful witness to this situation. But you need to choose people to go with you who are full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit, able to remain objective and to see things without partiality. And people that can speak, speak into your life and to speak into their life. And you need to ensure that the people you bring with you are people that the other person that you're going to also trust them. There's a, there's a good character of reputation there, and he's going to have to have confidence in those people. You want to deliberately choose people wisely this way. But the people you choose do not have to be an actual eyewitness to the original sin itself. That's not what's going on here. Sometimes that's, and oftentimes that's not possible. In fact, I think that when you have this offense, it's between you and, and the one person. You've already dealt with this privately, so it's assumed that there wasn't other people of the party to it. The reason you're taking one or two thing, people more is to establish the words, to establish the facts, to establish this confrontation, and to verify this is being done rightly. To hear the communications. Oh brother, that's not what he just said. You're not hearing it correctly. This is what he said. Oh brother, no, that's not what he meant here. See? So the people you take with you do not need to be witnesses of the sin itself. The people will verify the communication as well as the evidence presented and the manner in which you're approaching this. So they go along to verify that your response and your manner and the way you're conducting yourself is the right way. And if you get out of sorts, they need to step in and calm the matter down. Okay. When you approach an offender, 
and, and you approach someone to go with you on a certain case, they're going to want to know what those details are. Okay? I've got a brother, he's offended me. I've gone with him three times. He's not, and, and now you know, he's, he's in trouble, man. He's off into sin. He's fallen off the wayside here. Now, can you come with me? First thing you need to do is you need to debrief those brothers on, the, on those details. If you ask someone to go with you, make sure that you then have a case to take them with you before you go and address them. And when you do that, make sure that you don't withhold any information from them. I know sometimes when you're going to a brother, you're trying, or a couple of brothers, you're trying to make a case, you're trying to win them to your side. Don't do that. Make sure you tell them everything, because if you don't tell them everything and you withhold facts from them thinking that it's going to advance your case, that is very damaging. It's not your case versus their case, it's God's case, and you need to be righteous. When you withhold information because you suspect that it may weaken your case, you're doing great damage. Just share everything with the details that need to be shared, see, and, and not hold back things that you feel could weaken you. Because when you get there before the person, they're going to bring it up. And then the witnesses may be surprised. And then all of a sudden, things get really embroiled. Let me tell you something, in, in every church situation, discipline situation, or this process that I have seen, I see that Satan just loves to get his foot in the door. This is like a playground for Satan, and if you don't go in the right manner with love for the right purposes, and you're going in the, with the wrong spirit, he loves to embroil things, turn the tables on the, the innocent parties, and all of this distraction, and you have to go prayed up, and you have to go biblically. And it's important for witnesses that are coming not to take sides in the situation. They are trusted individuals for their objectivity, and it is very easy to sympathize with the person that is enlisting you for their cause. They have been offended. You heard their story. Oh, and your heart goes out for them. And immediately you're jumping on the side and sympathizing with the one who's been offended. But you haven't even heard the story yet. And Proverbs 18.17 says, The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. And you need to make sure that you do not jump to conclusions, that you don't presume guilt by hearing one side of the story only. Because it will always seem, it will always seem to you that the person that's coming to you that's the offended is in the right at first. So be aware of this and do not presume guilt. Go there objectively. Help the brother also see where he may have contributed to some of the problems if he has because if you're careless in your approach and you go to a brother who may be innocent or you judge a matter before you hear it out, you could bring permanent damage to that relationship. Permanent damage. Proverbs 18.19 says, A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city and contentions are like the bars of a castle. An old pastor used to say, When a brother has it out for you, you can't even blacken his boots, 
satisfactorily. In other words, if a brother has it out for you, there's some things that you can do that you will never be able to satisfy him. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you try. And that's true with Christians as well. When someone gets crosswise with you, even when you apologize with a humble spirit, no matter how much you try to convince that person, sometimes it just sticks in their crawl and it will never be forgiven. It's not the Christian thing to do, but just realize from your perspective that happens. So remember before you enter a situation, there are risks involved in offending another and slandering another. But you also have to go. It's that knife edge. You don't have a choice. You have to do this. But if you do, you better make sure you do it right. And this is the way that you have to be obedient. So the way you approach the situation. The brother from all the evidence that you've seen and you're trying to help this situation be peaceable. All these things are important. See, in Proverbs 17, 14, it says, The beginning of strife is like the releasing of water. Therefore, stop contention before the quarrel even starts. It's kind of like a dam who begins to erode, and all of a sudden a little leak comes out from the bottom, and pretty soon it becomes further and further, and pretty soon the whole dam busts open. That's what strife is like if it is allowed to grow. So on the one hand, you can't hold back from doing what you're supposed to do. On the other hand, the case has to be verifiable before you are to bring others into the situation. And those brothers need to make sure that they remain objective and that they can verify along with the one who is bringing the case. Be sure you have all the facts or the best you can before you even go. And what if you approach some brother, to be witnesses, and you lay out your case before them, and they're listening to this whole thing, and those that you've entrusted said, you know, I'm not seeing it. You're offended. You're the one that's hurt. You're emotional. You feel attacked. You feel oppressed. You're the one that's been criminalized. You're the victim and all this. And all of a sudden, your brothers who you've entrusted yourself to, they're saying, yeah, we're not seeing it. Now, how would you conduct yourself in that situation? I believe the wise and the prudent thing to do is accept their opinion on that. That's what you've enlisted them to do. They are wise. They're being impartial. You have called them to this situation. Now they're seeing it a little differently. And I think the wise and prudent thing is to listen to them. Because you wouldn't even approach men like that to begin with, or ladies, if you didn't highly respect their judgment. And now... They're not agreeing with you, and you need to respect their judgment. You don't want to take with you one or two more 
simply because they are going to agree and sympathize with you and provide that emotional support. That is not what you're trying to do. If those people are doubtful that you ought to proceed to this next step, and yet you know in your heart that you are right, but they have a larger picture, they can stand back and see the relationships in the body of Christ, they can see the nature of your evidence, then you need to give them the benefit of the doubt in the case and let it go. Let it go. However, if it is verifiable and that you need to move that forward, you need to do it in the spirit of Galatians 6.1, that you're going with the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And that spirit of meekness is, is a mildness. You're not going emotionally charged. Your purpose is to win your brother. Your purpose is to Protect the church. Your purpose is for the exaltation and the glory of Christ. It is not to prove Him wrong so that you feel vindicated. And folks, if you take two or three, one or two others with you, two or three go, do not assume at this point that this is heading to church discipline. This is not there yet. Don't anticipate it. Don't expect it. Go in faith that God will be in this. So you need to ask, what is the role of these others? And the point is, the role of the others here is to witness the confrontation. They're there because there's many possibilities in the way that this can go. And there's many possibilities that if it goes to the church, they're going to have to verify the communication between you and the one who offended you. And what they have to do is bear witness that you approach this brother right, that you've already approached the brother by yourself, that your heart attitude was correct, and that you then present your evidence and you've got a strong case, and you're going to have to testify as a witness to that. And when you ask others to come along with you to witness this confrontation, you need to also be open to their testimony and to their input to you. You're not enlisting them to be on your side. You're enlisting them to help in a situation to be objective. And you need to go in a meek spirit lest you also be tempted. The second part of their role is given in verse 17 in Matthew 18. And that is... They are to speak into the situation. They are not just passive witnesses here. It says if they refuse to hear them. So they're also talking in this confrontation. And their role is, as they advise in the situation, they're clearly there to help and they're clearly to engage in the conversation as well, to weigh in on it and to help it. So they are there to listen. They are there to weigh in with counsel. Now, if you are ever in a situation where you have dealt with it privately, you go with one or two others, and you're really working through the situation, and perhaps maybe they're like a sluggard of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and they have their reasons why they're not working. They have their reasons. 
You know, Proverbs 16 says people like that are wiser in their own conceit than seven men. The lazy man is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Now the difficulty with people like that is they always have some justification. They always have some good reason why they are continuing in their, their sin. And there's many offenses that, that can apply to But here was the slugger. And if you're ever being dealt with, and you just end up giving reason after reason, you keep justifying yourself and vindicating the reason for it, you're not listening to one man. You're not listening to the two or three. And you're not listening to the seven. You need to step back and think as clearly as you think that you're right. You may not be. You may be that deceived, dullard that the Proverbs is talking about and that needs to be humble. Sometimes you can have four or five people reasoning with a man, pastors involved, deacons involved, whatever it is, and you can't get anywhere with him. And it could be that the whole lot of you are wrong. Because we're not infallible. And if there is a possibility that the one brother is right, the wise thing to do is give him the benefit of the doubt. But if you're one that four or five people are coming up against, you need to at least open up that possibility. Could these men be right? And I'm just not seeing it. I think I'm seeing it, but I, I might not be because deception is something so strong that even the enemy can deceive the elect if God did not shorten the days. So when we think about this directive in Matthew 18, the two or three witnesses that are being called alongside is to prevent a lot of harm for the church because the very next step is to take it to the church. And when you get there, all hell can break loose in the church if you have not done these steps properly. And you have allowed Satan, hell itself, to get the foot in the door of the church. So regardless of where we are this morning as a church, we can be certain that offenses are going to come. And how we deal with it is critically important because Satan loves to amplify sin. It's exactly what the word means. His name means accuser. He will accuse you of things you have not done. But He will also accuse you of things you have done. And whatever He's doing, He's accusing. But thankfully, you've got a great high priest who can squelch all that accusation. Yes, I know He's guilty, but He's under my blood. He's forgiven. Go away. Or no, you are just lying. You're a father of lies, Satan. See, all of that. He just loves this playground. So how you deal with your brother is important. Very important. We can't just go brushing problems under the rug, hope that they just go away, that we don't deal with them while estranging ourselves from a brother further and further. You cannot do that. It will come out in a most in big way. It'll, the volcano will erupt. So if we're going to obey these directives, if we're going to be faithful here, 
We have to be. This, was, this is what's going to preserve heritage in the gospel. This is gospel living right here. This is believing in forgiveness. This is believing in repentance. This is calling each other to repent and believe the gospel. This is at the core of our salvific gospel life. This is what's going to preserve this church is if we practice the gospel of Jesus Christ with one another and sharing the gospel, living the gospel, forgiving each other in the gospel for the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is what's going to preserve us and we have to be about it. There's going to be some attacks on us that are going to be so subtle, but some of them are also going to be very obvious. We've got to deal with it. We cannot hold grudges. We've got to love one another. And love covers a multitude of transgressions. If you have the energy to go talk to somebody else about the problem or the offense, then you stop right there and you take that energy and you go talk to the offender. Do not spread gossip. If it's worth telling a friend, it's worth going to the offender in the first place. There may be a misunderstanding a lack of communication, a misinterpretation. Let's deal with problems in meekness, not being emotionally charged. Mildness. Let's do it for the Lord's sake. Let's don't do it for our own. Let's not promote our ego. Let's not be defensive to try to defend our particular reputation. Let's seek the truth. Now, there are times when the Apostle Paul had to defend his apostolic ministry, but it wasn't for his sake. It was for the sake to whom he ministered that he had to defend his calling. If you need to escalate any matter beyond a private conversation, make sure you have a strong case and some evidence to establish it. And if you can't do that, you may simply need to turn it over to the Lord, dismiss it, completely forget it, and love the brother and move forward. May the Lord grant us much wisdom and grace to work through, biblically, conflict resolution. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, You have loved us with an everlasting love. And as You love us, You have given us the Scripture you discipline us as dear children, for if you did not discipline us, it would show that you did not love us. How thankful we are for the brethren who also are filled with love that even brings the discipline upon us. We pray that we would see it that way. As the psalmist David says, you know, let the righteous smite me. It is good for me. May we have that same spirit May we walk with the Lord so that we do not rise in our prideful flesh when you bring the helpers along to get us back on the path of righteousness for your namesake. And may we be faithful to do that as well, to go and help others in their walk. And we pray that we would do this in a, a genuine spirit of love that they can feel and they can sense, but one that you will use in a powerful way in all of our lives, both the offender and the offended, to sanctify the body of Christ, body, soul, and spirit. 
be glorified in giving us this instruction to bring forth much fruit from it, that we might go and be doers of the word and not hearers only. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.